Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'm joined by two special guests, Lewis Diamond, Executive Vice President and Senior Consultant at Diamond Consultants, and Nick Gerace, Senior Vice President, Dynasty Financial Partners, part of the investments team. Today, we're going to be covering a topic titled, Mapping Your Journey, Can I Really Use What I Like? When you think about advisors and their paths or independence, there is quite a bit of confusion at times around what is possible. Am I able to offer my clients what I was able to offer them previously at a traditional financial institution? Can I do things like lending, structured notes, private equity? And so today, with two experts in the field, we're going to spend some time talking about the transition to independence, the way in which people should think about their business and what it means to be an entrepreneur, and finally, hopefully, and most importantly, have some fun. So thank you both, Nick and Lewis, for joining. Let's, uh, let's kick this off. First question is for you, Lewis. Um, Ballers, one of my favorite shows, uh, is about the <laughs> sports agency. And in some regards, what you do is act as an agent on behalf of financial advisors who are looking at all different options, whether that be independent or otherwise. What are some of the questions that you use in order to identify the needs of an advisor? And what are some of the things that you try to do in order to figure out what would be the best spot for them? Austin, first off, thank you very much for having me on today. And I appreciate the parallels between uh, myself and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, so here to please, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I can be as prolific of a podcaster as he is an actor. Um, but in all seriousness, to jump right into your question, um, I think that is a pretty good description of the type of work that us here at Diamond Consultants do for the advisor community. Um, we really do act as an objective third-party consultant to mainly wirehouse advisors um, and also many independent business owners in listening to their, their needs, their goals, their frustrations, their pain points, and then matching it up against what's become a vast, vast landscape of options, especially in the independent space. Um, so I would say to start, um, aside from just understanding the actual nuts and bolts of the business, who are the types of clients, what's the investment process, is there anything esoteric or opaque that's in their portfolios, um, the big thing for us is just getting a sense of uh, what makes these individuals tick. Um, what's their goals, both personally and professionally? Um, are they looking to, to be enterprise builders? Um, do they want to have a multibillion-dollar firm? Is that what excites them and allows them to get out of bed every day? Or is it much more about 
just having freedom to serve their existing clients and having a nice, a nice lifestyle. Um, but from there, too, um, I would say actually where it all begins is just what are the frustrations or pain points that this group or this advisor is feeling at their current firm? Um, because if someone's not in enough pain, then it doesn't make sense for them to leave. It makes sense just to take the easier path um, and go with the status quo. Um, because a, a move is pain, it's a hassle, and especially when we're talking about launching into the independent space, it is a longer and more arduous road. Um, it takes much more work. It's not as turnkey or immediate as going to another wirehouse. So we want to make sure that we're clear on what's, what's driving the bus, what are the motivations, what are the pain points, um, and then what do they want to be when they grow up. And I think once we have a pretty good sense of um, what makes them tick, and um, why they're interested in engaging in the first place, um, then from there we can match up um, what they're looking for with um, our vast number of clients um, and new ones that pop up every day, um, including uh, Dynasty Financial Partners. Great. Let me boil or try to uh, unpackage that a little bit. I don't know what I was going to boil, but maybe soup or something. But let me let me try to unpackage that a little bit. I think, um, and this is similar to a lot of the conversations that we have, there's, there's generally a catalyst. And the catalyst is pushing an advisor or a group of advisors to make a decision about their future. And when I listen to advisors, something that's really important to me is I would rather them be running to something rather than running away from something. So no matter what it is, I mean, we look at our lives and take it outside of financial advisory for a second. I think in any employment, there are going to be some really great things that you like about the company that you work with or for, and some things that probably aren't ideal. And to the extent that those ideal things become really relevant and impact your ability to, to have fulfillment and happiness in life, you're more than likely to make a decision to move somewhere. So I want to know, one, number one, what's the catalyst? Are they running towards something or running away from something? It's okay if they're running away from something. I just want to know that going in. And then the second piece that I look at is, particularly in the independent space, does this individual want to be an entrepreneur? And that to me is the catalyst of running towards something. Is this person somebody that says, I want to run a business, I want to create a brand, I want to be able to do more than what I can do right now, I want to manage people, and I understand that that's a tremendous responsibility. So when you go through your process and you're trying to identify above and beyond what you kind of outlined in your earlier comments, what are the things that, that pique your interest around entrepreneurism? And is there a way that you can evaluate whether or not someone really understands what that means and are ready to ex accept those responsibilities? Yeah, I think that's very well said, Austin. Um, to, to phrase it a bit differently, um, we, we look at things as there needs to be pushes and pulls. So the pushes might be compliance is managed to lowest common denominator, a branch manager conflict, changing compensation plans, um, pressures to cross-sell banking products, um, those tend to be the pushes. And there has to be a good number of pushes in order to motivate someone to um, even consider a change. But they also have to be equally motivated by a pull. And the pull might be a strong desire to be an entrepreneur or a business owner or finding a model that 
allows them to serve clients better and grow the business faster. Um, so I think you're exactly right. Um, you have to really have a burning desire to be a business owner or to be an entrepreneur. It's impossible to sell or convince someone that they should be a business owner. There has to be that desire in their stomach to do it. And I think what's incredibly exciting about where we are today, and honestly the reason why um, Cheryl and your whole team started Dynasty in the first place and why you continue to have success is because you've, you've enabled people that are inherently entrepreneurial. They've built incredible businesses at a wirehouse, oftentimes with little support, but taken away a lot of the pain points or factors that might limit them or preclude them from tapping into their entrepreneurial DNA. Um, so I think that's kind of the first thing to set the table. Um, another big area, too, is the short-term economics. Um, we all know that that many firms um, that need not be named pay massive recruiting deals. And for many, it's a really nice way to take chips off the table, de-risk a transition, and that's very important to them. Um, but when going independent, you're building real equity value, you're benefiting from a higher payout and oftentimes higher growth rates. But that one fact oftentimes is a really good determinant of whether someone has, um, has it in them um, to become an independent business owner is the opportunity cost of a big deal. Um, so to be very much more direct with the answer to your question, Austin, um, I would say one of the biggest things that I look for in helping gauge if someone has what it takes to be independent is asking them what is it that excites them about potentially being independent. If they just say it's the payout, then say, why don't you just go to an independent broker-dealer? It's easier. You get some upfront money. Um, so what I look for is an answer that talks about um, recruiting and acquiring. It's about freedom to market themselves. It's about different lines of business. It's about freedom to customize technology. It's about not being limited or constrained to one platform, having true open architecture, and shopping the street. And I think there really has to be um, strong motivations from that individual or from that team um, to do things that are big, bigger and better than what can be accomplished in a wirehouse, because otherwise it's easier to just stay or to take a big deal from a traditional firm. Great points. I'll, I'll end it with one additional piece of commentary, and I agree with everything you just said. This may be a controversial point of view, but I don't really care. The reality is if you're an advisor within a traditional financial institution, you're not yet a business owner. You have aspects of a business, meaning you have clients that generate revenue, but you're doing it within the confines of a system that not only limit you in what you can provide to your clients, but secondarily doesn't allow you the ultimate freedom as an entrepreneur to do all the things that we've already talked about. So it, when I think about somebody that's, that's looking to make this decision, I want to be able to understand, one, do they understand that part of this is their ability to communicate effectively to their clients what the real value proposition is of the services they provide, which needs to be bifurcated from the institution in which they're at. And then secondarily, again, coming back to that responsibility point that I made earlier, that they have to then accept the responsibility for every person on their team. Typically in a structure, you have advisors, 
you may have analysts, you may have uh, support staff, but all those individuals are trusting in the people that own the client relationships that when they leave these institutions, their health care is going to be okay, they're going to have a 401k, they're going to have all the things that they need in order to go home to their family and be happy. And so that to me is also incredibly important is when you transition from an employee to an entrepreneur, that huge amount of responsibility that comes with it, and I want people to accept it and be excited about it. I mean, do you see a lot of that that goes into the decision-making process? How myopic in terms of those details do people typically get, or is it something um, that just is too much to handle as part of the conversation? Yeah, it's, that's interesting. Well, first off, I have to give, give you all credit, Dynasty, because I think you, you take away a lot of the complexity. Um, you, you enable advisors that want to be business owners to fulfill their dreams. Um, you don't allow them to get bogged down with needing to worry about compliance or getting overwhelmed with finding real estate or having to do the thousands of items that are on a project plan to go independent. Um, you make it so that if people have that drive and that motivation and they're looking at this for the right reason, that they can fulfill their dreams. Um, so there's certainly, though, plenty of advisors that look a little bit myopically at going independent at all, and they'll kind of get stopped in their tracks just by the sheer number of items that need to be completed, and they might rationalize not going independent um, or not going independent and starting their own RIA um, from one or two reasons that honestly aren't that big of a deal. Like many people talk about not wanting to concern themselves with compliance. I don't think anyone is excited about compliance, but it's something where if you outsource it, you work with someone like a dynasty, and it doesn't have to be a full-time job. And honestly, many people find that it's better to control your own destiny and have control over something like compliance, and that, that shouldn't necessarily slow them down or pre preclude them from going independent. So I guess some people, they do look for rationalizations or reasons why it may not make sense. Um, and, but others, they look at the full picture, and there's never any perfection in, with anything. Um, if you're going independent, it's not perfect because you're giving up some short-term economics. It's not perfect because there's some extra work that you have to take on. But advisors who do go independent and advisors that we counsel, they look at the full picture, and they say even though there might be some extra work or some extra steps involved, the, the full package of maximum freedom, flexibility, and control of owning a business, of not never having to transition again, of not having to worry about compensation plan changes or the broker protocol is completely worth it because I can really chart my own course and own my destiny. Great. Switching gears for many years and even today, arguably, the bedrock, the foundation of what financial advisors do for their clients or have done for their clients in the past is around investments, investment managing, and making sure that the assets that are entrusted to them are able to fulfill the objectives that their clients have. And I know that one of the big, big components of the decision-making process around becoming an independent financial advisor, candidly going anywhere if you're in one place, is... Um, the investment side of the equation. So Nick, you and I, mostly you, all you, handle this discussion <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis <clears throat> around helping advisors to understand uh, the new environment. So what are the things that you ask them 
um, in order to get them comfortable and in order for them to feel like they're going to have the ability to serve their clients in a new environment. Yeah. So first off, I, I do want to draw attention that Lewis got compared to The Rock and I got no such introduction. So I'm feeling a little left out. Well, um, that's because uh, Lewis looks more like The Rock than you do. Thanks. Lewis, I hope you're flattered. Um, no, so, so, I am. Yeah. I love all my hair, though. <laughs> so, and, and I'm used to just getting bullied by Austin, so it's fine. But no, just to, to dive into the question, I think the most important thing as we approach, you know, the investments conversation with advisors who are either looking to go independent or have already decided to, to make that leap is a conversation around asking that advisor or that advisor team, what is your value proposition to your clients, right? So what are your clients looking from for you or why have your clients decided to, to join you, right? And I think that starts a really interesting dialogue. Uh, we see everything. There's, there's a whole spectrum and, and you know, uh, of how advisors articulate their value to clients or what they do for clients. And it ranges everything from advisors who – are manager selectors or, or selecting individual securities that they believe add excess returns to a benchmark or a stated benchmark or a blend of, you know, SMA managers where they, they you know, tell their clients that they've got the secret sauce when it comes to manager selection and, and manager due diligence. And, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got advisors who are very much financial planners. And the portfolio and the investment selection piece of that is is a much smaller fraction of their conversation with their clients and why their clients are, are with them, right? And whether it be goals-based planning, cash flow planning, et cetera, that's where their value is. And that takes up 90 to 95% of their client conversations. So what that tells us, right, at Dynasty and specifically on the investment team is, is what the best solutions and, and how those conversations with those advisors need to go best. Because having a, a conversation with an advisor who is very, you know, performance-driven and manager access driven is one thing, right? And that's about making sure that advisor knows that we've got access to great managers, most, if not all the time, the same products and the same managers and the same private equity quality, et cetera. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum with more planning and outsource-based advisors, letting them know that there are top of the line, you know, providers in the independent space for outsourcing portfolios and giving access to really good intellectual capital around capital markets and, and portfolio management and being able to outsource that operationally and make it as efficient as possible. Because that operational efficiency becomes a huge piece of the puzzle uh, for advisors at that end of the spectrum. And really, we talk at Dynasty a lot. We we can provide all the intellectual capital and we can sit around and talk about markets all day long. And Joe Dursey, who's our chief investment officer, ran you know portfolio consulting groups. And I've got a background there. And, and we love the investment space. But at the end of the day, most of our conversations with advisors pre-launch is around making things as operationally as efficient as possible, right? Because that's what's really important. And that's where we think as advisors gain scale there, that's where they're adding value to their clients. And I think that is obviously an incredibly critical component of getting someone comfortable. I mean, if, if there was an advisor here with us today and that person really didn't have a great understanding around uh, the independent space, uh, independent custodians, access to managers. I've heard it, and I think they would probably represent that, one, I'm not sure that I'll have access to these things, and two, if I do, it's likely to be at a higher price point. So <clears throat> in the conversations that you've had over the years, and one, am I making that up, or is that, an is that generally a fear that people have? And then secondarily, how do you overcome that concern or or is that a valid concern? 
Right. Well, well, Lewis earlier used the phrase that I love so much, which is shop the street, right? And we talk to independent advisor, or advisors about independence all the time about being a client of the street. So one, it is a genuine concern that we hear uh, from advisors pretty frequently is, you know, I really like that Merrill Lynch is, is you know, whether it be doing due diligence or bringing, you know, product, et cetera, uh, to me, uh, how, do I, how do I attack that in the independent space? And one of the big things I will say is the product providers in the independent space or, or in the asset management space are all dying, right, to attack this big beast that is the RIA industry, right? But it's so fragmented. So if I'm an asset manager, right, going around and knocking on doors of 1,000, 2,000 different RIAs is, is pretty difficult. So that's where I think the platform providers do add a ton of value right, to independent advisors, whether it be through model delivery SMAs or alternatives, et cetera, is it gives a, a more singular distribution point for the asset managers to reach the RIA space and also get you things like scaled pricing through institutional buyer agreements and, and things like that. So I think working with platform providers um, helps overcome a lot of that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, you really, we, we tell advisors all the time, right, like once you're independent and you're on your own ADV, you're kind of a, a big boy, big girl to be able to go out and, and look, you work with Dynasty, we're happy to help, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the independent space is about finding what you think is truly best for your clients and not not necessarily having to listen to, to big brother or big sister around what that means. Right. One of the prevailing trends, it's not even, it's, it's been a trend for a while. It's been a value proposition for many different advisors, pretty much wherever they are, is this whole concept around open architecture. So people say open architecture, and I question, do you really know what that means? Like, is it really open architecture? For me, and this is a personal definition of it, it comes back to what you just said, which is, if I'm a financial advisor, and I'm a fiduciary for my clients, meaning I have the responsibility to go out and find the best product at the best price for my clients, then by the very nature of that definition and its connection to open architecture, I need to be able to go wherever I need to go to find the best products right. and solutions. Right. And I think that it's one of those terms, open architecture, that's overused but not really pushed from a consumer perspective. Like if you're thinking about this and we're using vernacular that is is very specific to financial services, but to break it down simply for anyone, it's you want to be able to go and buy the best things for the lowest price, and you want someone that's able to provide that to you without feeling the constraints of an institution that says you can't use this particular product across the street because it's not on our platform. You think, is that an accurate statement? What, well, I, what do you feel about that? No, I think I think you're completely right. We had the conversation the other day. I'll, I'll use your analogy around the ice cream shop, right? Don't steal my analogy. I'm stealing your analogy because it's. <laughs> but but this is it, right? As if there's there's one ice cream shop in town, and that's all. That's the only place you're allowed to go get a scoop of chocolate ice cream. I mean, what incentive does that ice cream shop have? Right to use the best products to provide it at a low cost and and really service the clientele when when it's a captive audience right versus a true open architecture environment where you know you can go wherever you want for the products you you need or want to service your clients so we, there's that whole argument that that competition breeds excellence and and you know when there's more options that's what what is best for the advisor and the end client right so that's true open architecture um, you know I also think that true independence and, and as, as a tangential point to, to open architecture is the ability to fire 
right, just as easily as you can hire things, right? So you're not captive to one product set or what one diligence group thinks uh, about a product or a service or what one, you know, derivatives desk prices a, a transaction at. Um, I think that's, and, and you and I also talked about that recently, is, is a great piece where we see really black and white uh, some of the advantages of independence when, when some of these large institutions know when you come as an independent advisor looking for pricing on a transaction, that you're also calling another desk to get pricing, so they better put their best foot forward if they want to win a trade. Yeah, very good point, Lewis. And, Nick, and, can I weigh in? Actually, oh, yeah, actually, I was gonna, of course. I was going to ask you a quick Austin, question. Steal, oh, sure. Yeah, I was just going to. I was going to take your job for a second. You I can. Yeah, take it. You're probably doing better than I can. To, <laughs> <laughs> I was curious to get Nick's opinion on. Um, so, oftentimes. Um, we all come across advisors who they say, I've built a very plain vanilla business. I work with millionaire, millionaire next door type clients. I really just build portfolios of ETFs. Um, there's really nothing that's like that's that exciting about my business. So open architecture is great, but it doesn't really matter to me. Um, how would you how would you take a stab at that? Like in terms of what you were saying, Nick, around the ice cream shop analogy, how would someone who doesn't have tons of alternative investments, a bunch of SMAs, trust business, derivatives, how would, um, how would what you said um, resonate or really matter to an advisor with a more plain vanilla business? Yeah, I think that that's a great question, Lewis. I, I, I think that that's where the conversation drives back to some of the operational efficiency stuff. And a lot of the things we hear from advisors who are in that seat are, look, I don't want to spend time placing trades and, and, you know, doing manual rebalances. The advisors who run streamline, like, you know, to your example, ETF portfolios where they just provide a strategic asset allocation strategy and across, you know, 10 different risk profiles, whatever it may be, are really mostly frustrated by spending too much time on their investment piece, right? So how do I streamline that? What are the best, you know, tech providers for rebalancers? What are the best ways for, for me to totally outsource trading to an overlay team, right? So the conversation with those advisors really drives more toward the operational piece. Um, now, look, there's there's some really cool ETF products out there, and and you know, for for advisors who want to want to look at you know different initiatives in that space, whether it be thematics or you know different just just old, new products coming out in, in that space all the time. But but at the end of the day, it. it spends less time on the actual investment thesis around the benefits of open architecture and moves more toward the open architecture of technology and operational scale. Yeah, I would also add, and it's a great, great question, great points, Lewis. Thanks for doing my job. I would, uh, I would also Lewis, add, you want to come in and switch seats with Austin? <laughs> 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 He's, you're doing great, Austin. <laughs> I would also add, and this is a big one for me, part of this in, in, acting as a consultant to advisors should be, while I totally appreciate your business at this point in time, or, or candidly, historically, has been, quote unquote, plain vanilla, you're making this move for something bigger, I would hope. I don't know. I'm sure that there are people or advisors that would make the move because they believe that they could do the exact same thing and increase their pay maybe take on a few extra responsibilities, but um, the increase in pay and, and more flexibility is attractive. But I don't think that's like the main driver for individuals that are making this move because this is a significant decision in your life, particularly if you're a financial advisor. So 
yes, steady state, you may not need alternatives. You may not need structured notes or private equity or any of the quote-unquote non-vanilla flavors. My favorite non-vanilla flavor, by the way, is um, chocolate chip cookie dough. I'm also a huge Bananas Foster fan. Nick, any... Is that a that's an ice cream flavor? Yeah, it's an ice cream flavor. You should try it out. But my point is that uh, you're thinking about things outside of your steady state of business. The other point that I'll make is oftentimes when sitting down with advisors, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, Lewis, there's the we're plain vanilla advisor or there's the opposite, which is we're different than everyone that you've ever seen. And the reality is, that's why I love working with financial advisors, because even though those two concepts fundamentally may be true for that individual, there are some definite consistencies across the board that makes people great at being a financial advisor. It's having the ability to allow their clients to trust them. It's guiding their clients um, towards their objectives. And the reality is there's all different ways to get there. Um, it's just a matter of understanding what's important for your business. Can I can I also make one point to that? Because I, I think this sure. is something we, we obviously see a, a lot of is how many times have we uh, had conversations around the advisor or with an advisor who runs a quote-unquote very plain vanilla scaled practice? And once you actually get into the weeds around what that means to them, it's really, you know, if it's 200 clients, it's uh, everyone's plain vanilla except this one little detail. And when you actually peel the onion back, it is incredibly inefficient and and very much non-scalable. So as much as advisors may think uh, that a book is, is scalable or plain vanilla, there's always a lot of hair. Um, and maybe there's some exceptions to that, but I think there's always room for, for efficiency and, and adding scale and, and adding, you know, m- better components to a way an advisor is running a practice when they when they move to independence. Yeah. I think, and I think technology is a huge piece of that. For sure. And, and closing up this component of the conversation, I mean, the, the key for me is that people, advisors, should feel very comfortable that what it, what it is that they needed to do, particularly on the investment side, in order to have a positive client relationship is not only possible, but likely different and or better in the independent space. And, and, and that to me is, is something that at first glance is hard to understand, but it does come back to the point that you made earlier that I want to put a finer kind of point on it, Nick, is for a lot of asset management companies, they're looking for a way to distribute their product. The independent space in general is incredibly fractured. There are tons of RIAs with lots of assets that candidly not many people are familiar with. And trying to find them and then create relationships is, is really challenging. And so to the extent that there are companies that are able to create a conduit between advisors and ways to invest their their clients' money that makes it simple, I think that's a huge benefit to people in the asset management space. Um, and also, they want to partner. Therefore, it's almost a sure thing for most, there's no sure things in life, but almost a sure thing that you're able to find the things that you need to, to have for your clients in the independent space. I want to I want to change gears a little bit. Nick, you mentioned the word technology. It's a huge buzzword in our industry right now. 
Um, I'll ask a general question, then we can get down into more specifics. But where do you see the industry going? I'll I'll kick it to you first, Nick, and then Lewis. I'd love for you to weigh in, and I'll give it within this lens. If you look at the studies or you look at some of the data, there is relatively significant compression in a number of different areas. There are or there is compression with the custodians in terms of their fees and transaction costs. There is compression with the asset managers and the fees that they charge for a separately managed account. The one last bastion that has yet, I don't, is that the right word, bastion? I'm pretty sure. Last frontier, maybe? I like bastion. It's one of those words that I, anyways. One of the last elements that hasn't been impacted too significantly is advisory fees. And so when you think about the future and you think about fees, where are we going? What should people be excited about? Um, And and what should people know about the future of wealth management? So this is me first. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, as you you look at the, Fee compression in general, I, I'm a big believer, in, and it's outside of the realm of, of investments per se and, and might even counter what my role um, in working with some of our firms would entail. But I do think that you have to be more planning-centric in today's day and age. Uh, I think that that is a more tangible kind of uh, feel, uh, especially with market dynamics recently. And, and it, you know, active, you know, you look at active mutual funds and all the studies and being harder and harder to f- pick funds that outperform, et cetera. I actually think, you know, and I'll, I'll pivot a little bit toward the future of what I think portfolio management is, is I think advisors and some of the best ones we work with now, I would argue, are doing this to an extent, are being very careful around picking spots to, to get really cheap beta, um, so if you look at the large cap core, you know, space and just your S&P 500 exposure, you know, holding a, a free or a two, three basis point ETF. Um, and, and if you're going to pay for asset management or things within a portfolio, making sure you're paying for it in places where you think you can actually add out performance. So, you know, areas like, you know, emerging markets where there's more dispersion of performance and, and you can actually pick securities that'll beat the benchmark. And, um, you know, so if you're going to pay pay in those asset classes and not just, you know, spend 1% to hire a, a, an asset manager in the, in the large cap space, for example. I think the other component of that is advisors being more careful around things around the edges of a portfolio that can add a little bit of outperformance. Because again, those things are typically more expensive, but they're things that are proven that, that can add some value. So think about things like private equity, right? So if you're only investing in the public markets, you're really only capturing a, a fraction uh, of the actual businesses that run in this country, right? So why, why am I not getting exposure to such a large asset class and a large base of, of the economy? Uh, and then you've brought up things like structured notes and, and ways to mitigate risk and protect on the downside as part of a portfolio, which some people refer to structured notes, for example, as, as defined outcome investing, right? So if you're a financial planning based and, you know, somebody has, you know, only so much downside room within their financial plan, well, if I can incorporate something with, you know, mimicking downside protection as a portion of your portfolio, it makes sense within the context of a plan. So two pieces of that. One is, I think, bringing it all back to the planning piece and always using that as your home base and your anchor in client conversations. But then, more, so that's the advisor fee piece. And then all the ancillary expenses and asset manager third-party expenses is just picking your spots, right, and making sure that more efficient asset classes are, are, are more efficiently run. And I think advisors of the future will be doing more things around the edges. To the technology piece, those things become easier now, right? So, you know, companies like iCapital and, and some of the alts platforms where, you know, 
you got rid of the thousand page subscription doc and it's all automated online and you know platform providers like a halo for example to let you go auction a, a structure note out to 13 different issuers like that's stuff that independent advisors have access to that make those things around the edges a little bit more efficient and it's technology that allows them to do that and i think you'll see a continued drive toward that in the future and I, and I love those examples that, that you gave around the companies that are utilizing technology effectively. I'm a little bit geekier in terms of the mechanical and operational outcome because it's great. Uh, you listen to, to what I said and you're like, oh, fantastic. Now I'm in the independent space. I can uh, act as a fiduciary, do whatever I need to do, find these unique investment ideas. But to me, that's part one, part two and part three is how do you then either mimic or give a better client experience? There has to be a way that your end clients are able to receive reporting on these asset classes, uh, reporting in a consolidated way that flows into your financial planning tool so that data, to your point, Nick, can be utilized in something that's a little bit more meaningful than some numbers on a page. I think the reality is that because <clears throat> you can create a platform with the best in breed of different providers, not only do you have more access potentially, but you can bring that access in to a way that makes sense for the client using technology like planning tools, like um, providers that, that are connected from a technology perspective. It, it just becomes a, a better or a different yeah, I'll say it, better client experience. What about you, Lewis? What are your thoughts on the future? What are you excited about in terms of uh, wealth management independent space? Yeah, so first I would just comment on um, exactly what you and Nick were, um, were discussing on technology. Um, it, it is one of the more exciting parts of this industry is all of the, the fintech and new entrants and all these all these companies that have creatively solved problems that either clients or advisors have felt for years. And it's very different from what's available at a traditional firm. Now, not that the, tech, the technology is, is bad at a wirehouse or an independent broker-dealer, but it's more that it's proprietary and it's built for the masses. So advisors don't have the freedom and flexibility to go out and hire an iCapital or a Halo um, to create the best possible platform. I think all that said, though, um, it is pretty easy as a newly independent advisor or someone considering independence to get bright, shiny object syndrome and just get encapsulated or engrossed in all of these different things, but at, in the end aren't able to effectively connect the dots for clients on why this new piece of technology or why this new capability is going to be in their best interest. And so they get kind of distracted from the task at hand. And engage in too many relationships and make it so that they're not effectively using the tools that they should be using most, which is their performance reporting system, the financial planning tool, developing the relationship with the custodian. Um, and to me, that's one of the biggest value adds that Dynasty brings. Um, a bunch of us were out at um, Schwab Impact Conference last week, and there's 500 booths of exhibitors. And that, to me, is a great example of all of the options that are available um, to independent advisors, but what someone gets from partnering with you is the ability to have trust that you're constantly doing due diligence on technology platforms um, and on different vendors, and you're just bringing the best in class to the table and integrating it for them. 
Um, so that was a, a tangent that digressed from your original question, but I just wanted to comment on that because I think that is one of the more important things that Dynasty brings to the table. Uh, it's a, um, yeah, I mean, it, sorry to cut, cut you. It's a, it's a great tangent. It's a great tangent because when people start a business, they're entrepreneurs. I, I've hammered that point like five times, but it's really critical. And as an entrepreneur looking at a business and a P&L, which is unique, I think, sometimes for people, you're now looking in two categories very specifically. You're looking at revenue and COGS, cost of goods sold. And so... I think that the shiny object syndrome, it, it happens a ton, but what could also happen um, above and beyond the shiny object syndrome is that upon a transition to a new environment, the, the first, I don't know, three or four months is an incredible scramble, right? This is the time that we need to move assets over and we need to get them performance reporting. We need to bill on those assets. Those are all incredibly critical activities, but there also needs to be an element of stepping away from the day-to-day and thinking about the way in which you can structure the business for scale and for growth in the future, and that's where the shiny object syndrome comes in. More specifically, because now you have all these options, you start to think about things that may be a good idea but you don't really critically evaluate them. I mean, when you think about business model and design, you really should be thinking about something like a net present value calculation. Like what is the cost of the project that you're looking to do? Are you getting into a new line of business? Are you hiring a new person? And what's the cost for that? Not just the actual dollar cost of an investment, but what is the time, energy, and effort that you're taking away from somebody that theoretically could be doing something more valuable? And to me, that's the big rub when you start to become a business owner and entrepreneur is making the right decisions as the business goes from a life cycle perspective so that you don't make a decision that ends up hurting the overall P&L. And th- that tangent was really important because I think that happens a lot. I know that you do a, a, a lot of consulting on the front end, but I also know that you communicate with your clients post-transition. Does, does, that, does that, what I just laid out, do you think that happens on a regular basis? Yeah. Honestly, I think it happens far too often. Um, is As soon as someone breaks away, they're not only getting called from all of their clients, who the people that they want the, that they want to call them, but from other advisors that are curious about the move, but all the vendors start calling too. Oh God, yeah. um, all the tech vendors oh God, yeah. saw, saw saw news of the move, and it becomes overwhelming. And I I think what we see is just because something sounds interesting or might be cool, it might be a good idea. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the highest and best use of your business's time to focus on implementing something new or to 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 your point, Austin, to look at the economics or the net present value of this idea or this platform, this technology, and decide to deploy it in the business. Um, Because the the most critical part of an an independent business is getting started. It's it's the transition. And if your eye isn't on the ball of transitioning your current book of business to your new organization and creating the best possible client experience for the people who have been loyal to you for all these years – it doesn't really matter what sort of alt platform or what sort of vendors you have in place in the future because you you because you'll have squandered the opportunity to get off um, to, to get off the running start. Great, and Nick, 
you talked we had the, the the conversation earlier around plain vanilla which a lot of times is in plain vanilla and when individuals represent that they're running model portfolios and then you dig into the business it's yeah there are constituents like securities or products that are the same across client types but each client has something that's individual so advisors are actually running 50 or 60 models and i always say particularly when when i'm talking to advisors because i always preface it like i understand this is the utopian point of view which is being an advisor is really challenging and so there's lots of different variables that come into play that impact decisions let's take that out just f for the sake of argument how many people do you see as part of either inquiries into to our firm or that you're working with currently that actually stick to a manageable number of models? Yeah. No, it's 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 I don't know if I want to use the word problem, but it's it's a very prevalent topic. Sure. Um and and I will say one of the things that we talk to advisors about through the before an advisor you know makes the decision but is they're kind of poking and prodding around the independent space or really any move is i refer to it as, as a purification process right like look at your book now think about the things that maybe they don't keep you up at night but you look at them kind of they're the thing in the back corner of the refrigerator that's maybe got a little bit of hair on it and you just haven't addressed it yet um like think about those items in your book and think about how this process can help you improve upon that specific client scenario or that model that is just one percent deviated from the rest and and just you know is added an hour of work a month to to the book right so Think about this as an opportunity to clean these things up and whether that be, again, not to keep coming back to the same point, but whether that be the technology that enables you to do that or just the natural progression of a transition and having to go sit down with clients and articulate a, what I believe to be a new value proposition of independence to your clients. And you're already we, – we tell advisors all the time, you're – through this process, you're already going to have a touch point with a client, right? So there's really two schools of thought. One is, you know, advisors say, I want everything to be – one-to-one -one completely whole through the transition, right, which is one school of thought, and the other being, you know, I have to go, and, and I'm, I tend to be a believer of, of this and, and put my chips here personally is, like, I have to go meet with my clients anyway. I'm going to be telling them a new story anyway. So if there's things I want to clean up or changes I want to make through the transition, then, then let's use this as an opportunity to, to make some changes and, and drive things, whether it be more toward, to, to Austin's point, more toward the core set of models I want to run or more toward the core product set or, or value prop I want to align myself with. I think that's a great, the, the independent transition is a great timing for that and a, and a great opportunity. Yeah, one of the books that, it was recommended that I read when I joined Dynasty was the book, The Goal. And in a very simplistic way, at looking at uh, manufacturing processes and where bottlenecks occurred, the story helped me to think about how to take that concept and expand it and then try to help others potentially use that same mindset. Let me be more clear because that was super ambiguous <laughs> and not probably helpful to anyone. The, the reality is, again, when, when we're working or when an advisor is working to build a business as an independent, you're starting to some extent at square one, meaning that you can re-engineer 
the way in which you do business if it's not efficient. There are tons of advisors. I would say the majority of advisors that have a very efficient business. But to the extent that you can take it even further and think about the impacts of decisions. And that to me is incredibly important because there are oftentimes the decisions that we make, not just at um, Dynasty, but candidly any other place that I've been where it seems like a very logical and easy decision to make, but you don't think about necessarily the cascading downstream effects of that and the work that it creates for other people within the organization, which limits your ability to scale and grow. Because ultimately, when we come back to that point of what we're trying to do, I think, collectively, is we're trying to manage our revenue and COGS, and we're trying to build enterprise value. And the way in which we do that is we generate more revenue, as long as it's good revenue, and we lower our COGS. If we do that, then theoretically, we'll have a higher enterprise value. And at the point in time which we will, which to sell something, anything, it's going to be worth more. And so I just think that 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 philosophy of always taking a step back prior to making a significant decision, whether it's a technology change, a human capital decision, um, an added deliverable to the client, just make sure that that decision is something that actually is meaningful to the business and not something that just seems logical. Because even though something may seem logical, it may not actually be the right decision. That, to me, drives back kind of the advisor to CEO stuff, right? Sure. And there's, there's human elements to a lot of these decisions, and, and it's about – this is back to the, the beginning of the podcast, right, and being a business owner versus someone who kind of operates a business inside of a large organization. And that's how I view that. Yeah. So, Lewis, May 2018, you wrote a great article – entitled The Cleveland Airport Test. Now, I know that you gave the disclaimer that it has nothing against Cleveland, so I'll also do that uh, for the sake of the listeners. Nothing against Cleveland. Uh, but one of the, uh, the items within that article was a comment around stop kicking tires. There was also uh, things around being authentic. And basically, your article talked about the way in which individuals who are interested in learning about a different platform, forget about independence, just in general, thinking about doing something, if you're a financial advisor that's different, that you need to pass the Cleveland Airport test. I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, where did that come from? Not Not the concept around the Cleveland Airport test, but just... Where did those precepts come from, and, and how, how much do you believe in them? It's <laughs> funny you bring that up. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the kind words. I would agree. It's nothing against Cleveland. You can fill in the blank of any, uh, of any, of any airport and, uh, and put it in. We'll say the Newark Airport test. I'm from New Jersey, so there we go. I offended myself. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say it came from the fact that um, in working with advisors um, day in and day out, um, we've seen many very smart advisors who have great businesses really bungle parts of the, of the due diligence process, and it's been to their detriment. Um, so everyone needs to be thorough. Everyone has the right to talk to whoever they want as many times as they want because the transition is a big decision, especially a transition to become a business owner is one of the biggest decisions that an advisor, an advisor will ever make. Um, but my belief is that even though advisors are in the driver's seat when it comes to the recruiting process, um, it's also a two-sided process. It's a human process, and folks on the other side of the table, whether it's Dynasty, it's Charles Schwab, it's Fidelity, it's Raymond James, 
Um, they're human beings too. And there's a point where you have to just walk in their shoes and think if you're a prospect, if you're courting a prospect for your, for your book of business, um, if this prospect isn't going to work out or they're not going to be responsive or they're going to blow off meetings or they're just going to keep talking to you even though they have no intent of moving their account, um, it's what impact does that have on you? So I wrote it really as a, as a, because I believe there has to be a mutual respect in a due diligence process. And oftentimes, really smart advisors who are likable, who have great businesses, can oftentimes do irreparable harm um, to their reputation with the firm because either they're not acting in the best of faiths or because they're just not ready to make a move and they get labeled as a quote-unquote tire kicker. So I kind of just wrote it as a cautionary tale because we've seen it. Um, we've seen this happen too many times. Yeah, Lewis, let me know when you can uh, grab a drink and tell me exactly what drove you to write that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a story there. I think, I think we might need more than one, uh, more than one drink. I think Lewis and I might have collaborated on one of those. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, but you, all, all really good points. For me, it, it's tough, right? Because this, and Cheryl Penny, the CEO of Dynasty, says this a lot, which is during the transition or if somebody's going to move what what we're doing collectively at Dynasty, or candidly any firm, not specific to Dynasty, any firm that's taking on an advisor, you're represent you're you're protecting their life's work. I mean, some of these people. I mean, we've moved individuals that have spent thirty plus years at one financial institution. Thirty years. That's a really, really long time, and that encapsulates lots of changes of management and people and marriages and weddings and birthday. Marriage and weddings are the same thing. Yeah, Birthdays and all. Duplicative. <laughs> lots of different life events, and so it's, it's an incredible responsibility. And so I think, to your point, Lewis, sometimes within that process of trying to understand what is the best thing for themselves, their families, their clients. There's some element of getting lost. And what I liked about your article was it's okay. Like you, you, it's okay to get lost. Just come back to these points. Cause at the end of the day, there's another person on the other end of the spectrum that's trying to help you more than likely. They're really trying to help you help themselves, of course, but help you find the right spot for you and your business. And if, you want to drag something on for two years and then totally go a different direction outside of whatever consultation you're getting or you're playing multiple people against each other. I get that it can be exciting, but it's kind of a bummer in the reality to be in the middle. It really is. I mean, that's the best term I can use it. Is there a bummer to be a technical term to be in the middle of all that? So I really like that article. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up. I will, uh, last couple questions, last two questions. Uh, Nick, recent transplant to St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, number one restaurant in St. Petersburg, Florida. So I don't, I don't think you'll find this one on any of the major rating sites. Um, there's a quasi touristy part of town known as Gulfport. For those of you that are listening, there is a, I gotta be careful about the words I use. There's a, a semi rundown looking shack across from the bay. Um, and it's called little Tommy's Tiki. Um, and the fish taco. So Austin, uh, has introduced me to little Tommy's Tiki. We've been back probably about a a dozen times. Uh, and I will challenge any listener to this, really anyone on the planet to find a better fish taco. 
um, really anywhere. Uh, I think it's $2 land shark drafts and uh, fish tacos until you, uh, you can't walk to the car. It's, uh, it is a top-of-the-line establishment, and I give it more stars than the rating system will allow. Great. That was uh, very well done. Good Yelp review. And, Lewis, uh, quick question for you. I know Lewis, th- we have to get you to Little Tommy's Tiki. We do need way. to get you to Little Tommy's Tiki for sure. It is, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I know that I made the comparison to The Rock as, uh, you know, the, the agent-esque aspect of what you do. I'm also interested if anyone has ever referenced an NFL quarterback and the likeness between you and an NFL quarterback. Are you familiar with, with that? I, I assume we're talking about Jimmy Garoppolo. No. Uh, that's Ruggedly actually good I, looking. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Oh, I was thinking more of the Chicago Bears quarterback, Mitch Trubinsky. There's no N in his last name, by the way. Sorry, I pronounced it wrong. But you, I think I think there's an uncanny there's a resemblance. Yeah, there's a pretty uncanny resemblance. So I wish you, we could bring it up and we could all look at it together. But um, all jokes aside, I want to thank both of you for participating in this podcast. I hope that the people that are listening to this found it uh, helpful in some way, shape, or form. And you both are incredible professionals. I am super lucky to have the opportunity to work with both of you, Nick, on a daily basis, and Lewis a little bit more sporadically, but when we work together, I really enjoy it. And so uh, thanks again. Thank you, Austin. This Appreciate was awesome. Appreciate the opportunity, Austin. Lewis, pleasure, uh, pleasure being on this with you, and Austin, thanks for having us. Likewise, Nick. Take care. Thank you, everybody, for joining me in listening to the Powering Independence podcast. I also want to have a special thanks to our guests, Lewis Diamond and Nick Gerace. Please remember that this will be an ongoing podcast, so stay tuned for our next episode.